Thank you, choir. Home at last. Certainly the theme of heaven is on our minds this morning as we open again to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is where we'll be. We've been going through the gospel of Mark, and we now find ourselves in the first verses of this chapter, Mark 5. As we come there, let me say this. Demons exist. If we trust the testimony of Scripture at all and accept what it has told us concerning this fact, we know for sure that demons exist. They are unclean, intelligent spirits who have their own structures of authority and seek to influence and destroy both individuals and nations. Demons are real, but, and not wisely so, the subject of demons, demonology, demon possessions, has always seemed to be somewhat removed and academic from sophisticated American 21st century churches. We just don't talk about them. Bible-believing Christians have always accepted the fact that demons exist and activity has happened in the New Testament times, but most of us are inclined to relegate demonic activity to those pagan lands that missionaries visit. We just don't talk about it here. Yet, like it or not, demons and demon activity are likely to become much and much more common in the coming days as we wait for the Lord's return. Paul tells us that we struggle, and bottom line, our struggle is a spiritual one. In fact, Ephesians says this in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not what we're wrestling against, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Even in our sophisticated times, there is an intense interest and the supernatural and the occult. Ouija boards are found in many American homes. Uh, horoscopes, astrological predictions, uh, all of these things have their roots in demonic activity. For the Christian, there are two extremes which must be avoided as we reference this subject. As C.S. Lewis aptly put it, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialistic or a magician with the same delight. The same dichotomy is true even within the Christian church. And yet, neither of those attitudes are biblical. We do need to be content with what the Scripture tells us about demons. We do need to be content with that. But we do need to know what the Scripture tells us about demons. We can begin a sermon like this by discussing first what we do know and what we do not know about demons. And perhaps a, a simple chart before we eat, read the text before us will help us about things that we do not know, things that the Bible does not tell us about demons, and things that the Bible does tell us about demons. Perhaps a simple chart will be helpful as it kind of puts us together on one subject before we read our text from Mark chapter 5. The Bible does not explain their origin. We know that they, like all creatures, were created by God, but other than that, the Bible does not explain their origin. The Bible does, however, tell us their destiny. Matthew 25, verse 41, tells us that the lake of fire 
was created for the devil and his demons. So while we may not know all about their origin, we do know their destiny. The Bible does not explain their appearance. We have little hints here and there, like the one in 1 Corinthians 11, when it says they like to disguise themselves as angels of light, but we don't know what they look like. We, we have these pictures of little red guys with horns and pitchforks, but the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what they look like. But the Bible does tell us that they are powerful. They are powerful enough that a single demon could attack and utterly overmaster multitudes of individuals. They are powerful. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Bible does not explain their essence. We don't know the ins and outs of their makeup, what makes them tick, so to speak. The Bible doesn't tell us their essence. But the Bible does tell us that they are intelligent, spiritual, and utterly evil. Matthew 10, verse 1 goes into that detail. The Bible does not tell us what demon possession is necessarily. It doesn't articulate all of the refined processes of how that demon gets into that person in the first place. But the Bible does tell us some of the effects of demon possession. Demons can pre present themselves with physical maladies as well as spiritual injury to mankind. It does tell us about that. The Bible does not tell us to seek them out, that we should become demon hunters. That's where some people go astray today, as if somehow advancing the gospel means we need to destroy demons. The Bible does not tell us to seek them out. But the Bible does tell us to stand. That is, if the demon seeks us out, or if somehow we have to confront them, we are to stand. That's what the Bible says. This is important. The Bible does not tell us that they have no influence over a believer. In fact, there are several instances, like Peter's life, when it seems that Satan is actually affecting the thinking of Peter, causing him to think doctrinally inappropriately. The Bible does not say that demons have no effect on believers. The Bible does tell us that demons cannot inwardly possess believers. The power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is so extensive that the Holy Spirit in our lives occupies a space that the demon cannot occupy. But that is not to say that demons cannot affect believers. So our text today is important. Because in our text, it offers insights into the demons and their world, and it prepares us to respond biblically to their activity in the world. Here's what our text says in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarians. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no not with chains, because that he had often bound with feathers, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And when he asked him, What is thy name? He answered, saying, 
My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him that he would not send him away out of the country. Now there were nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000. And were choked in the sea. And they fed fed the swine, fled, and told it in the city and the country, and they that went out to see it, and what was done. And they came to Jesus, and they see him, and the man that was possessed with the devil, and the legion, sitting and clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they, saw, they that saw it told them how it befell him that was possessed with the devil, and also concerning the swine. And began to pray for him to depart out of their coasts. And when he came out into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed that he might be with him. Howbeit, Jesus suffered him not, but said unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them what great things the Lord has done for thee, and hath compassion on thee. And he departed, and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. That's certainly the point of this text. Certainly we should marvel at exactly what we just read. Now if you are a believer today, the Lord has delivered you and put you on his side. You are in Christ. But at times, instead of finding ourselves aligned with Christ and carrying out his will, we instead find ourselves, even as believers, aligned with demons and their will. That is, we are doing exactly the opposite of what the children of God should do. So our text this morning is directing us to an overall theme. Since demons oppose God and everything he stands for, and since they influence people to join that opposition, you must seek God's help to live victoriously. These spiritual forces are out there, and sometimes we feel as though we are shadow boxing. We are fighting against an adversary that is somehow altogether elusive to us. And if we don't have God's help, then the suggestions that they bring to bear on our minds, coupled with our destructive, sinful flesh, will carry us right over into, at the very least, the same agenda that demons have. You see, we don't have to be indwelt by demons to do the same things that demons do. Demons are intelligent creatures. So are we. Demons are spiritual creatures. So are we. Demons have a will. So do we. And the passage before us and the theme I've now introduced raise a very important question. Will you align yourself with God's will or will you align yourself with what demons do, the demonic agenda that is opposed to God? How is it that demons are opposed to God? Well, right from this text we note, number one, that demons oppose God by provoking destructive behavior. The first five verses of this text show us this. And these first five verses parse out precisely the way in which demons provoke destructive behaviors amongst men. Demons provoke spiritual isolation. The isolation here is not the isolation of an introverted person. God has created personalities. Some of you are more outgoing. Some of you are more inclusive by nature. This is not talking about personality traits. Rather, this is pretty radical spiritual isolation. 
Where is this man? When Jesus and his disciples get out of the ship, a man meets them, but notice where this man is coming from, says in verse 2. Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now those tombs were up in the mountain. They were set up back off the coasts of the Sea of Galilee. And this man has been out in a distance. He had been at a place where normal humanity was not operating. He was isolated from other people. I was at one time teaching through this passage as part of an ongoing curriculum to a bunch of fifth grade boys in Sunday school when I was in college. And I asked the class, what do these tombs communicate to you? What what are the tombs that this man is living in? What do they communicate to you? And one precocious boy said, they are filled with dead people. Now, obviously, the child is right, but the more you think about it, the more you realize exactly what Satan's demons and his demons are trying to do. They are trying to take God's creatures, specifically mankind, and associate them with dead people. Isolate them from living organisms, from those that they could have communication with. One of the ways Satan does that is by isolating us from each other. This has been very easy in the Western world, for Satan to accomplish these things because we are such radical individualists. We just want to be by ourselves in our own kingdom. We want to push people away. We say things like, I'll do it my own way, or I'll deal with my own problems. I'll I'll keep it close to my chest. I'm not going to get help. I'll sort it out on my own. That's exactly what Satan wants us to do. Satan provokes spiritual isolation. I was talking with a pastor the other day. He had someone who got very, very sick, even a stroke. And uh, the stroke affected their mobility and their speech. And the family, because they thought that would be embarrassing, actually checked their mother into the hospital under a pseudonym so that the church folk wouldn't know that this person was in the hospital. What a isolated thing. I talked to someone else who was in the hospital and never once picked up the phone to call anybody to let them know. And then said, and had the audacity to say, I can't believe nobody visited me. (laughs) That is exactly where we live. We live in an isolated environment that we are so individualist, we, we put up what one person called the new moat, which is our garage door, and we go in there and we lock ourselves away. And Satan works that way. You ever heard that uh, the uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop? Perhaps we could better say isolated hands are the devil's workshop. Satan wants to push people away from each other and spiritually isolate you. And some of you have been thinking along these lines because Satan has so spiritually isolated you that you have begun to th- believe the lie that God doesn't care. God doesn't care about me. Look how that guy has got it. Or God doesn't care about me. If he did, why am I here? But that's not divine thinking. God is not the one encouraging that kind of thinking. And therefore, the only place that kind of thinking can come from is from the devil himself, who has pushed you so far away from God's people and so far away from God's church that in your isolated position, you are vulnerable to the devil's lies. Satan provokes spiritual isolation. But demons also provoke self-destruction. Verse 5 shows us this. 
In verse 5, it says that this man night and day was among the tombs, among the mountains. He was always crying out, and he was cutting himself with stones. Those kind of impulses to treat your body in a way that is injurious to the body does not come from God. Now, this includes everything from cutting to self-starvation to overeating. Making up the body that God has given you is not, or marking up, rather, the body God has given to you is not stemming from God's input in your life. Again, this must mean that if it's not coming from God, that it's coming from either your fleshly nature as it's influenced by the existence of demonic activity in the world. And we do have to look at a parallel passage, at least mentally, to get the fullest extent of what's happening here. In Luke's Gospel, one additional feature is given that is alluded to in the last section of Mark's Gospel. In Mark, it says in Mark 5, verse 14, they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, and this time it was notable to them that this man was actually clothed. Now, why the reference to his being clothed? There's no other reference to anything else like that in in Mark's gospel. But in Luke's account in Luke 8, verse 27, it says that he wore no clothes. That was what was unique about this man. Now, think carefully. In our fallen state, the scriptures mark off nakedness as having legitimacy in only one very limited social confine. And therefore... You are actively siding with the demonic agenda when you use or view pornography. Now, we've heard messages on this before, right? We know pornography is wrong, but let me be very, very straight. Pornography is actively siding with the demonic agenda because demons, for whatever reason, hate the human body. And from the beginning, demons have been attacking the human body, disfiguring the human body, and debasing the human body. And taking us from being these glorious creatures that God created in his image, and treating us like dirt, and something to be transacted as a mere commodity. There is no middle ground in this. When you cross over the line to misuse God's gift of your body by marking your body, cutting your body, starving your body, overeating in your body, or even viewing the nakedness of the body, that is in direct opposition to God. Demons are provoking this kind of destructive behavior. The Lord is calling us out of that kind of destructive behavior and turning us over into a new glorious kingdom. And he's saying, I have given you this body to be used gloriously for my kingdom, not that kingdom of darkness. And for whatever reason, demons hate the human body. But demons are also opposing God by by exalting this self-will. And we see this then outlined in verses 6 through 10. God is our sovereign Lord, and the demons will do everything to take him off that throne. And most notably, they'll replace the worship of God with the worship of self, actually, before they even try to replace the worship of God with any worship of idol. Demons confess complete antipathy towards God. 
Know what the demons cry out in verse 7. Did you see it there? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Have you ever wondered what that means? We've tried to figure this out and translate it into English to make sense of it. Let me go ahead and give you what it actually sounds like in Greek. If you just put it in Greek, it would literally say, What to me and to you? You can understand why the King James translators put it that way, because what to me and to you doesn't quite roll off the tongue either. What does that mean? What does this basically say? Well, here's what they're saying. What from my perspective is the same from your perspective? That's what they're asking. Or to put another way, where is there any common ground between us? If God thinks something is good, demons will say that that same thing is evil. If demons think something is good, God will say that there is evil. There is absolutely no overlap between the two. There is no rapport. There is no negotiation. There is no common ground. Now, these demons exhibit submission by force. They have to prostrate themselves before the God of heaven and earth, but they are really not submissive in spirit. In fact, even in this confession, they are actually being rebellious. This is the defiant criminal, right, who walks into his prison cell while cursing the judge, police, and all of society and saying, I will have nothing to do with them. I don't care what the verdict is saying. I still hate them. And then they get locked away in prison. They're still defiant, but they're going to jail. He has to go. Overwhelming forces that stand next to him are pushing him into that jail cell but he will still say, what to me and to you? That's what the demons are saying. This is reminiscent of the final battle between the implacable Captain Ahab and the whale in Herman's Moby Dick. Have you ever read that story? Maybe you were required to in English class. And the struggle results in Ahab being caught in a harpoon line and being dragged to his doom. He's going to die, and the whale has won. But in a vicious expression of defiant self-will, Ahab's last book, or rather words in that book are this, Towards thee I roll, thou all-destroying but unconquering whale. Uh, uh, Unconquering, he just conquered you, rather. To the last, he says, I grapple with thee. From hell's heart I stab thee. For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. That is demons. They hate God that much. They oppose everything that God stands for, so much so that at last breath they will spit at God as they get thrown into the pit of hell. And so we are aligning ourselves with any wrongdoing. We are aligning ourselves with the personal forces that hate God, not as an abstract concept, but hate the very God himself. Demons confess total antipathy towards Christ. And demons always shift the blame. There's a little phrase that is actually something of a shift of blame. The demons cry out in verse 7, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Now why is the demon calling God into a situation of oath-taking to keep Jesus from doing something? Why are demons adjuring God to take an oath. Has that ever kind of puzzled you as you read that passage? If demons have no common ground, why this? Well, here's what they're saying. 
They're saying, Jesus, if you do something to us now, you are wrong and bad. You are not supposed to torment us ahead of an accepted time. That's what they're saying. This is basically a defiant, accusing tone towards Christ himself. They are shifting the blame from any of their actual wrongdoing. When Jesus asked the demoniac his name, it was not without significance. For he was, I believe, asking the demon to reveal his identity. He says he asked him, what is your name? And he answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. The reply, Legion, may be some kind of evasion, a reluctance on the part of the demons to individually identify themselves. To the evildoer, anonymity is always preferable over complete identification. Is this not exactly what our first ancestors did? It's not my fault. The woman you gave me, that's the fault. Even their children would say, I'm not my brother's keeper. Friend, please know something. When you shift the blame for your wrongdoings, you are actively siding with demons. That's absolutely what demons do. They shift the blame. It's never their fault. And demons and demonic activity are very real. But thirdly, demons oppose God by attacking creation. So they are not only attacking us, humans, spiritually and physically, but they are also attacking creation out there. And their purpose is now quite clear in two regards. They are attacking creation to destroy God's work, and they are attacking creation to discredit Jesus Christ. When the demons are cast out of the man, where do they go? Well, they go into 2,000 pigs. We read about that in verses 12 and 13. It says, And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd violently ran down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. What on earth? Right? Also, why would Jesus do this? Well, note that in our text, our Lord did not command the demons to enter into the pigs and bring about their destruction. Nowhere does it say that Jesus said, leave that man and go to those pigs. That never is stated. The demons did that. They went. He only permitted that to take place. The drowning of these little pigs has caused a great deal of discussion amongst Bible students. For a friend of mine once discovered and said, that's a lot of pork chops wasted. I said, well, not pork chops. I'm more concerned about the bacon. But had our Lord achieved such a thing, maybe those who were there would have begun to blame Christ for this. First of all, the EPA would have been investigating the pollution in the Lake of Galilee and the decaying pigs there. Then the SPCA would have been all up in arms about the cruelty of animals. And then the Livestock Association and the consumer groups would have been greatly distressed over the sudden decrease in the pig population in the city and the subsequent rise in prices. Why did the demons take the pigs and just run them off the cliff? That doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense, does it? Demons hate God's creation, that's the point. It doesn't make sense. They want to mar it up and destroy it any way that they can. They don't care. But I think there was more of a subtle reason for demons to drown these pigs. Drive 2,000 pigs off a cliff and what happens? 
Well, the herdsmen would certainly run away in dread terror. And as they're running away, are they running towards Jesus? No, they're running away from Jesus. And they go and tell the people in the towns and the villages, and the people come out and see Jesus, and they want to run to Jesus. He's the miracle worker, the Savior, right? Verse 14, And they fled. They, they that fed the swine told the city and the country, and they went out to see what had happened, and now they see the man clothed and in his right mind. Verse 15, And they came to Jesus, and they were sitting there with the man that used to be possessed with the devil, and he in his right mind, and he's clothed. This is the same man who had done some incredible things. He was strong enough to tear apart at least bronze fetters and smash those things. Who knows what else he was capable of doing? This man was once out of control, cutting himself out in the tombs, and now they see him sitting there with Jesus in his right mind. And what's the people's response? You would think they would start praising God and glorifying him for the marvelous change that was wrought in this man's life. Instead, we read this, and they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell him, what had possessed the man of the devil, and also concerning what? The swine. And they began to pray for him to depart out of the coast. They are now asking Jesus to leave. They are blaming Jesus for the destruction of these 2,000 pigs. But Christ was a saving man. The demons were destroying pigs, but by their works, demons were actively seeking to impugn God. How many times have you heard people say, there is evil out there in the world, and evil is proof that God doesn't exist, because if God existed and he was good and powerful, he would get rid of evil. How many times have you heard something like that? But the scripture tells us that God did create everything perfect, and it was a benevolent and good God that did that. But it was man's sin and Satan's sin and Adam's sin and all of our sin that has destroyed this. So Satan, in the process of marring up God's intended to be good creation, gets to turn an accusing finger back at God and say, it's God's fault that we're in this mess. But it's not God's fault. Why don't we recognize that we are on the opposite side of God when we look at a calamity, even in creation, and say it's God's fault. Demons oppose God, and one of the ways they do so is by attacking creation. And demons are real. So where is the salvation in that? Where is the hope in any of that? And I'm so glad that you asked that question. <laughs> this is a great passage for that. And have you ever noticed this first part of that verse? Verse 1 of chapter 5. They came over to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes. The big deal here is that Jesus has been on the other side of the Galilee and now he crosses over. By the way, as he crosses over, what happened? Back up to the few verses that previously led to it in chapter 4, and you know exactly what just happened as they crossed from one side of the sea to the other. It says in verse 4, chapter 37, verse 437, and there arose a great storm, and waves beat upon the ship. They did encounter an incredible storm on that ship, on that sea. They thought they were going down. That's what happened. 
Jesus is crossing the sea at peril to his life. And when he finally gets over the side of the sea, what does he do? Does he preach to this huge evangelistic campaign and thousands of people that had been on that side are now going to hear? Does he go and push some resort then, maybe for some rest and relaxation, maybe like a, a good kind of disciple powwow with his disciples around the campfire? Is that what they're doing? What did Jesus do after crossing with great peril to his life to get to the other side? What did he do when he got to the other side? Answer? He destroyed Satan's power over one man. You think I'm exaggerating? Go down just past where we stopped reading and pick up in verse 20. After this man was told by Jesus to go back home and tell his friends what had happened, here's what happens in verse 20. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things God had done for him. What else did Jesus do for the people in the Gadarenes? What else? He risked his life and his ministry and his time and his exhausted effort. Remember how exhausted he was? He did all of that to cross the Sea of Galilee for just one man. That's it. Jesus has the power to deliver us from evil, and he did it for one man. Now, churchmen, let me tell you something. There are times that you and I can actually side with the devil when all we are looking for is big crowds. And we look past the changed life of one man or woman. One person who comes to Christ is worthy of great rejoicing. And more than that, one person who comes to Christ is worthy of great risk. It's worthy of great exhaustion. You might be working in Awana clubs or in children's church or Sunday school, and you say, I, I plow the same ground over and over. I just wish more than one would come to Christ. Friend, if one person came to Christ in our Awana group or in our children's church or in VBS, if only one person came to Christ and we put thousands of hours into putting that together, would it be worth it? It would be worth it. Don't ever look past the one Friend, we, we could shrink our church down to this front row, and if only this front row was here, but they were all on fire for God, would it be worth it to invest all the same attention and all the same effort and all the same services into that one group? The answer is yes. But how many churches do we know that have said, well, you know, we used to have this program or we used to have this service and it used to be bigger, but because it's kind of gone down, we just have to rethink it. We've got to restructure it. Maybe we'll just get rid of it altogether because it's smaller than it used to be. Friend, I, I, I believe our Savior is willing to preach to one. And any preacher who's not willing to preach to a small crowd week after week with the same enthusiasms of the large crowd is not worthy to be called a preacher. Jesus went to one. And Jesus Christ is the power, friend, to deliver us from evil. 
Whether the evil is in your flesh, whether the evil is demonic activity or influence, Jesus Christ crossed over the battlements of heaven and the gulf that separated God from man to be incarnate so that he could save you, friend. That's more than crossing over the Sea of Galilee. Instead of finding ourselves succumbing to demonic-like thinking, let's reject it in the name and power of Jesus Christ. Satan is a traitor to God. We were traitors to God. And let us now continue to never continue the kind of demonic thinking who thinks that we are beyond that and we would never go there. There is no middle ground in this war. You are either actively advancing God's kingdom or are you participating in opposing God? There is no middle ground. It's no wonder the scripture calls it war. If you were in war right now, I'm so thankful that we could just a few years, weeks ago recognize those, at least I hope you did, those who served as veterans in our military. And I've never been one, but I've spoken to those who sacrificed much. I know of those who have been on and actually active in active duty, and I know at least of their stories of exhaustion, at least when they come back, because when you're over there, you are in the war. Not, you're sleeping with one eye open. You, you, I, don't, I can't even imagine what some of these men and ladies who sacrificed so much to do so much to give us our freedoms went through. And yet we come over here and we read passages about war, and I actually believe that our veterans maybe need to speak to us a little bit more about what that means. Because they know what war is like. And they recognize how, how much is invested in that. And we, those of us, if you're like me, who were not in the military, we read that and we gloss right through that because we think of war like a soccer tournament. And it's not, is it? Because you don't get a break, do you? Friend, demons are real. That's kind of a scary sermon title. But let me give you the title of our series as we close. It's His Story. God is more powerful than demons. He is more powerful than evil. And he will cross the battlements of this war to save one person on the other side who's been blinded by all of this. Maybe today I'm speaking to one of those people. That one who's been so blinded by this that they need to come back to Christ if you're saved. If you're not saved, may today be the day of your salvation. May we have plowed through Mark 5, 1 through 20 just for you that you could accept Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we read this story of the maniac of Gadara many times. Many of us probably have heard of it. Uh, even if we're not church people, we probably heard of this story at least. But Lord, may we recognize that you are a Savior who's come to save the one. May we, may we bask in the glory of a God who even in the darkness of demonic activity broke through with great power. Lord, may we actively side with you. Even as believers, Lord, I believe we can actively side against you Lord, not, of course, without repercussions on our end. Lord, may we recognize from this text what it means to be a child of God even as we look at the negative of what it means to follow the devil. But most of all, if there are any in this room who have never accepted Christ as their Savior, may today be the day of their salvation. With every head bowed and eye closed, would you stand with me?
The instruments are going to be playing a bit of a military campaign song for Christians. Stand up, stand up for Jesus as they play. Would you allow this to be a hymn of invitation? If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, our great desire would be to show you from God's Word how you could be the one who accepted Christ. Would you allow us the opportunity to show you? If you are a child of God, would you assess your own life even as this invitation is given? Are you actively siding with God or against Him?